Good morning once more and uh, welcome to this fifth uh, study on Christian maturity. Next Sunday, our dear brother Paul will be taking up the Sunday school hour. We pray that the Lord will be pleased to help him. And uh, so today as we look at the final uh, installment during this study, the subject of Christian maturity, I will primarily focus on uh, or hopefully give much of our time to looking at human responsibility in Christian maturity. Maybe it does help to review at least something we learned over these past four uh, classes and one that I would want to underscore again is for us to beware of the pitfalls, the, pit, the pitfalls that tend to be around this whole subject of Christian maturity. I think one key pitfall is non-appreciation of its key place. Many people don't take seriously the subject of Christian maturity because we, they do not appreciate its key place. Its key place particularly in honoring Christ And its key place, as we've seen severally, in doing you good. When we think about the Great Commission, for example, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When we think about the scope of the Great Commission, surely we must see the importance of pursuing Christian maturity in honoring Christ. The Lord in the Great Commission is not telling us to just go out and make converts or become converts, then it just ends there. Easy believism is not what we are seeing here. We are seeing a disciple who has been careful to take seriously all that the Lord has taught him. And this same disciple then goes out to teach the converts to observe, not some, but all that we have been commanded by Christ. And, and that is part and parcel. The person who strives to observe and to obey all that the Lord has commanded us surely is one who is pursuing maturity. 
We've talked severally about Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, Paul says, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So an appreciation of the key place of Christian maturity or Christian discipleship is at the heart of, of a lot of weakness today in church. It's a major pitfall. The social gospel, the gospel that thinks that what Christians exist to do is to primarily make life easy for people, feed the hungry, and there is a place for feeding the hungry, and uh, uh, deal with world poverty, sickness, or, or pursue millennium development goals, and other very good things tend to forget that our scope of focus with regards to the Great Commission is that at a personal level, you must know and observe all that the Lord has commanded. And as you seek to share the gospel with others and disciple, you want to teach them to observe all that the Lord has commanded. I think another pitfall that we need to be careful about is use of non-biblical methods in pursuing maturity. We use, and we've seen this a number of times, there are so many people who don't know how to assess what qualifies to be maturity and what is immaturity. Many use wrong measures to calculate, to measure maturity or to measure immaturity. And uh, we need to be careful about that pitfall. So we, we, we need to be careful both with regards to use of non-biblical methods and measures when we are dealing with this subject of maturity. I think I have, I have talked a lot about wrong measures in, uh, in, uh, in Christian maturity so that I won't go back into that. But let's talk a bit about wrong methods in pursuit of maturity. For example, as we teach others or even talk to ourselves about maturity, some of the wrong things with methods is we don't talk about the costs. We just seem to tell people that come and all will be easy for you. 
And yet Matthew 16, 24 to 28 is very clear. It, you'd almost think the Lord being he, he makes it abundantly clear that uh, you must count the cost of being his disciple. Even in, uh, it should be Luke 14, 25 to 25 or not, it should be 25 towards 33. He again talks about the cost of discipleship. So that tends to be one of the things that lack in uh, methodology. I think another problem with me methodology in pursuit of maturity is adopting worldly styles. In helping people towards maturity. The, the self-help methods, pastors today are called coaches, and uh, motivational talkers, and uh, they do all this while excluding scripture. Scripture is sufficient. You know that from 2 Timothy 3.16, it's sufficient to train us, to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, so that we are equipped for works of service. I think neglecting Neglecting the church is a common and ultimately neglect of Christ is a common gap. Those are very common gaps in methods uh, that are employed today. As I've already said in the previous discussions, we talked about wrong measures, and uh, I don't need to talk about that again today. I think at the foundation, at the very foundation, a lack of understanding why maturity, or if you like, discipleship, is a source of, of immaturity in a way. It, it fosters an environment, it creates an environment where people do not perceive it. And uh, again, in the previous classes, I hope I have abundantly made it clear that immaturity is a very dangerous thing. It is not just ugly, it is dangerous. And we've also seen that maturity is a very beautiful thing because the essence of maturity is Christ-likeness. So the more mature you are, the more Christ-like you are. And if you are Christ-like, surely there is nothing as beautiful as that. And that should have a push, a pull factor, rather, towards maturity, it should draw you towards maturity because you desire to be like Christ. 
But the ugliness and the danger of immaturity should be a push factor away from immaturity. And we did see how in Hebrews chapter 6, having spoken to the Hebrew believers about be careful about immaturity, he makes a leap from talking about immaturity and goes towards apostasy. And we said that looking there at that section of Hebrews 6, uh, we need to realize that persisting in immaturity might not just be a sign of child, childishness, it might actually be ultimately a sign of a false conversion. If you persist in immaturity, you may be showing yourself to be one who does not have a true conversion to faith. Last week then we began looking at human responsibility in Christian maturity. And uh, riding on Paul's uh, comment last week, but one, we said the mature, or should we say maturing, have a responsibility. to assist others in the fellowship. And we got this from the fact that the author to the letter to the Hebrews is encouraging them, he's telling them, let us go on to maturity. Hebrews 13.22, he, he calls it a word of exhortation. Maybe this was a sermon, the book of Hebrews, that he had written briefly to the believers there. And we've seen times without number, Colossians 1.28 and 29, where Paul says he's working hard to ensure that he presents everyone mature before Christ. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Colossians 1, 28. We also did see in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 18, Peter is telling the readers there, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. So we see the spiritual leaders have a responsibility to urge others on to maturity. But we also did say this is not just a responsibility for those who have official leadership responsibility in the church, the great commission given to the church requires that all of us 
in one way or another participate in the making of disciples in ensuring that those who come to faith are taught to observe all that the Lord has commanded us, remembering that the Lord is with us to the end of the age. And there is a sense there that, as I've already said, plays on to Christian maturity, because if we are going to encourage somebody to observe all that the Lord has taught them, then surely we have put them on a trajectory towards maturity. We also did look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 to 14, which again shows that every single Christian, everyone who is maturing, has a responsibility to assist others to be mature. 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 12 and 13, the brothers, the brethren, are encouraged to honor those who labor amongst them. But in verse 14, the same brothers who are being addressed in verse 12 and 13 are now being addressed. Let's look at it again. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, 13, and 14. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So the brothers addressed in verse 12, being told, recognize that there are people among you who have been called by God, who are working among you, and who are striving, laboring among you. And the brothers are being told, love them, love their work. Love them because of their work. Are now again being told, participate in the work. We urge you, brothers, to serve these three groups of people, those who are idle, those who are faint-hearted, and those who are weak. So admonish the idol is not just a responsibility of the pastor. As a Christian, you have a responsibility to admonish the idol. You have a responsibility to encourage the faint-hearted. If you are a Christian, you have a responsibility to help the weak. And you are to do this patiently with all of them. So admonish the idol with patience. Encourage the faint-hearted with patience. Help the weak with patience. Hopefully I have made a case that, and one that can be defended, that you don't just have a responsibility to be mature, you have a responsibility to help others to be mature. Failure to which the Lord has a very stern warning to you. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 30, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. 
And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And a lot can be said about that. The Lord is saying and asking you the question, are you with him? And how do we demonstrate we are with Christ? Number one, by putting our trust in him, believing in him, his person and his work as the only basis upon which we can have peace with God. The only way we can be saved from the wrath of God is through Christ. So are you with him? You don't need to do much. You don't need to say, you don't need to persecute the church for you to be against the Lord. Just a failure in that one point to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ puts you at a place where you are against him. But then there are other areas, other, other branches that flow out of that. What does the Lord think about his church? Are you with him about that thought or are you against him? What does the Lord think about the scriptures? Are you with him or are you against him? What does the Lord think about leadership in the church? Are you with him or are you against him? What does the Lord think about the Ten Commandments? And we could go on and on ad infinitum. But here he adds, and that's the point I wanted to bring up here with regards to challenging all of us to participate, not just in our own pursuit of maturity, but in encouraging everyone else to pursue maturity. Having spoken about the basics, you can't say you are with the Lord while you are mistreating his church by not joining. He has established the church. He is building the church. He has given you gifts to use in the church, to serve others in the church, for you to take lightly the gifts he has given others for you or the gifts he's given you for others and to say you are with him is to deceive yourself, whoever you are. But now he also says if you're not gathering with him, you're scattering. And these words are said in a very solemn context because the next thing he talks about is the unpardonable sin. And that, that should sober as that to the pursuit of Christian maturity is uh, the responsibility to be, to abide in the Lord, the responsibility to bear fruit. And here we will Focus now in our remaining 30 minutes on John chapter 15.
John 15, and we'll be looking at fruit bearing. In John 15, chapter 2, the Lord is saying to the disciples, every branch of mine, John 15, 2, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he, meaning the Father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In verse 8 of the same chapter, he says, By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Lord is saying, if you are alive, you will bear fruit. He is saying this, every branch that is in him that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away and every brand that does bear fruit, the Father prunes that it may bear more fruit. And uh, he says in verse 8, you will glorify God by this. You bear much fruit. You will have an assurance of salvation by this. Verse 8. You bear fruit. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 16, he talks about the purpose of us being chosen by him. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask of the Father, Ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So fruit bearing is the purpose of life. It is the proof of the existence of life. So what fruit are we talking about here? Or what types of fruit? Let's try and think biblically. What kind of fruits do we see associated with Christians, the, thank you, Laura. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians five twenty two. And 23, they are listed there, okay? What are the fruits? Love for one another, yes. Hugely there, and, and again, you'd see it a lot in the, the epistle, the first epistle that John writes you, 
you don't love, you, you can't say you love God if you're not loving the brethren. So there is something about character and holiness, but there's also something about relationships within the brotherhood Christ-likeness, yes, which would be the fruit of the Spirit. And, uh, and when we talk about loving the brethren, again, we need to just realize the Lord is calling us to just do what he has done to us. Surely, he's saying, as I have loved you, so love one another. Of course, we can't do it on our own strength. But he's not telling you, do more to others than I have done to you. The fruit of our lips, because we talked about one of the maladies, that one of the signs of immaturity, one of the signs of decaying spiritual sickness is weak worship. And we talked about Hebrews calling us to offer the fruit of our lips in worship. How about the fruit of into the kingdom, expanding the kingdom, both on our knees, praying the Lord's prayer, the kingdom come, they will be done, hallowed be your name, and taking the gospel out to others, desiring a harvest, desiring that the Lord Jesus Christ could be worshipped by people who are currently not worshipping him. That's another fruit, isn't it? Okay. So we know this is what we are called to. We are called to bear fruit. But how do we bear fruit? We bear fruit by abiding. We have to erase something. We bear fruit all right inside the circle by abiding. Again, John chapter 15, there, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So in other words, an ingredient for fruit bearing, an irreducible ingredient for fruit bearing is abiding in the Lord. Just like a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, so also you will not be able to bear any fruit unless you abide in the Lord. In verse 7 of John 15, the Lord says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. So here we have, when we think about abiding, we will need to think about union, but we'll also need to think about Communion. Sorry.
Union and communion. Union with Christ is a once for all thing. It happens when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. But having had that once for all union, we have communion with him, which is moment by moment. It is every single hour, every single day, we are communing with the Lord, having once for all been united to him. So it is not either or, it's both and, with the foundation of the two being union, Union leads to communion. And it's not just union as in a branch to the vine and it does nothing, but the communion means there will be responsibility on your part. So that Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, which uh, Brother Ken Luthier reminded us, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Philippians 2.12, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is at work in you, and you work out what God is working in you. But then how do we abide? Obedience is what comes across in John 15 as the basis upon which we abide. Look at John 15, verse 10. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. He uses his own example of obedience to teach us that obedience is a thing that you cannot do away with if you're serious about abiding in the Lord. Even in verse 14, he again says this, you are my friends if you do what I command. So we see doing what the Lord commands. We see that keeping his commands are a basis upon which we are enabled to abide. And if we abide, we will bear fruit. But then, what enables us to obey? 
for us to obey, we must love. For us to obey, we must love the Lord. In John 15, verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. But if you go back a chapter earlier to chapter 14, in verse 23, the Lord says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him, and make our home with him. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who has sent me. Earlier on in the same chapter, John 14, 15, he has said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a declarative statement. He's saying, if, if you love me, you will obey. And so we are seeing how they are contributing towards each other. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit, which would be proof that you live. then how do we get to loving? And the answer is knowing him. In John 15, verse 15, he describes his disciples as those who know him. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I made known to you. So John 15 verse 15 is telling us you know the Lord you will love him. You love him, you will obey him. You obey him, you will keep his commandments. You keep his commandments, you will bear fruit. I say this because as we talk about human responsibility, which would be fruit-bearing, our tendency is to think the other way around. If I bear fruit, then I will abide in him. If I abide in him, then I'll obey him, then I'll love him, then I'll know him. A works-based salvation. But this cycle goes counterintuitive. 
It is in knowing the Lord that you are enabled to love. It is not in loving the Lord that you are enabled to know him. Knowing him feeds your love. And of course, after that, you want to know him more, and a cycle again begins in there. But foundationally, we love him because we've come to the knowledge that he first loved us. And so I would encourage you, if you are not a Christian, and you're saying, I really see the importance of Christian maturity, I want to pursue it. I see the danger and the ugliness of immaturity and your gung-ho about going out there by your own strength to bear fruit so that the Lord co-opts you into his vineyard and, uh, and then you continue with this cycle. You are, you are taking the wrong approach. Start first of all by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Put your faith and your trust in him. And for you to do that, you need to know the gospel. You need to hear the redemption story of Christ. Remembering how he is our creator. We owe our life to him. He is our lawgiver. We owe obedience to him. He is our judge, we owe accountability to him, and yet we have failed in all those three areas. We leave a seat, we owe our existence to ourselves, we dispense with all the commands of God, we don't pursue him, and we leave as if there would be no judgment day. And as a result of that, the wrath of God hangs upon each and every one until they are in Christ. And so, know the love of God. For the Christian, it means you never do away with the gospel. You always want to know God. You're always that kind of person who is at Daniel 11. Is it 32? They that know their God, grow strong and do exploits. You want to know the Lord more and more deeply. You want to be praying with Paul that I may know the height, the width, and the depth of the love of God to comprehend it. And the result of that is that you grow into this thing Paul describes there as the fullness of God. Those are things that we never outgrow. Knowing God is not the first step you take into Christianity and then you forget it and move on to other things. It is a step we are always on. The gospel is a thing we need both as we enter into the kingdom and as we abide there. I thought to summarize this as our responsibility so that I don't just tell you bear fruit and I end up being a person who is reading a hungry to the menu to a hungry person and then sending them home. I wanted to help you to see that the call to bear fruit, one is impossible. John 15, 5 makes that clear. Without me, you can do nothing. So don't expect to, on your own strength, become mature. 
it takes us back to the subject of God's sovereignty in our maturity. But then to also help you see what your responsibility will be. Because there are various aspects of human responsibility in knowing God, in loving God, in obeying Him, and in abiding Him. We have around 10 minutes, and this being the last class, I want to give as much time as possible for your comments or questions or corrections where I have gone astray. Any comments, questions, both from this class and the last four classes? Yes, yes, Brother Sitati. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for, for the lessons. Uh, there's a passage in, in Philippians that also talks about maturity. Mm. In Philippians 3, verse 12. Let me read from verse 12 to 16. Now that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then verse 15, that those of us who are mature Think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Mm. Yeah, I think from this passage, I see a lot of the uh, elements that you've talked about, even in this, about uh, God's sovereignty. You see it in verse. Uh, Verse 12, that Christ has made uh, as his own. Yeah, first, that's why we press on, you know. And uh, also, uh, that pursuing uh, to grow, pursuing growth, not just being content with the status quo, but pressing on. Uh, to towards what uh, God expects of us. Mm -hmm. And you see the charge in verse 15 is that the, the mature ought to think like this yes. of themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also uh, we see that in verse, in verse 11, 10 and 11, 
think this is what he's pressing on towards. Because he, has, he said that I may know him and the power of, the, of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Then uh, we see that even one sign of, of maturity is your view of suffering. Is, is, do you, uh, in moments of suffering, do you see it as uh, sharing in Christ Jesus and becoming like him in every respect? Is that the perspective you have when you're going through suffering? Because the mature ought to think like that. Yeah, just a few comments there. There are some things I have sidestepped that uh, I'm still studying. Uh, I know we did talk a bit at the OU. My perspective on John, Hebrews 6, verse 3, this we will do if God permit. And uh, I've continued to interact with various brethren. So allow me at this particular time to step that uh, as I continue to study. Okay, so then we can wrap up in four minutes. During our five classes, as we've talked about Christian maturity, we've asked ourselves, what is Christian maturity? And part of answering that question involved answering the question, what are the wrong measures of Christian maturity? Some of them very good things, but they are not necessarily the way to the foundational method, the index for Christian maturity, for example, is not gifts. You don't assume you're mature because you are gifted. We saw the Corinthian church did not lack any gift. And yet, in chapter 3, they are told they are children. They are, they are having arrested development. It's, it's not the, the childlikeness that is magical. It is childishness there that is tragic. And... Uh, so we saw gifts is not all. This church was gifted with teachers, apostles. They are talking about Paul, Peter, Apollos. They were privileged to have the cream de la cream in terms of teachers among them. And yet they were immature. We say maturity is not an instant thing. So do away with the notion that somebody will lay their hands on you and take you through some weekend of deliverance classes and you attain maturity. Paul is saying he's pursuing maturity there in Philippians 3. It's not an instant thing. We did talk about many other things. It's not, it's not a thing you calculate by looking at how old you are in the faith. We do respect the aged among us. 
and we we honor them. We don't look down our nose at those who are our fathers and mothers, age-wise. But age is not necessarily what maturity is. It's not automatic. It's not a thing you glide down towards. It's a climb. We did say at the end of the day, the true index of Christian maturity, as we've seen today at some point, yes, when we were talking about fruit bearing, is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 23. And uh, we've talked about wrong measures, but also wrong methods, and a low view of the important place of maturity. It's part and parcel of the Great Commission. We are not just looking for converts. We are seeking to raise disciples for the Lord who do all that the Lord has taught us. And uh, we see that those who are mature and are maturing have a responsibility towards the people who are lagging behind and not just those who have official leadership positions in the church, but each and everyone who is a Christian is part of those who in the church have received the Great Commission, have been called in, in First Thessalonians to participate in discipling others. May the Lord help us. In the words of Hebrews chapter 6, to go on to maturity. Uh, okay, Brother Elliot has a comment. I hope he tuned. Okay. The microphone is coming away for the sake of those who are. Uh, uh, it, it would be uh, a complete error for someone to think that they have attained maturity or to consider themselves fully mature, as we have seen from John 15, that uh, we grow in maturity as we continually abide in Christ. And for someone to say that they are fully mature or they have attained, uh, to equate them to being like Jesus or more or less be at par with our Lord. So I think uh, it's a lifelong pursuit for Christians uh, as long as we are alive and living in this world. Yeah. yeah. I think that's clearly said, and it comes again out of our definition of maturity. Maturity is Christ-likeness. If maturity for you is comparing yourself with others, then you will arrive very early. Uh, but if you're constantly looking at Christ, beholding him, seeing him in his grandeur and his beauty, there will be room. There will always be room for Let's close it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us during these past uh, five sessions to discuss this subject. We 
feel in so many ways convicted about what we know we ought to be doing and are not doing, what we know we ought to have stopped doing and yet to our shame have continued to have mercy on us, O Lord, and kindly grant that we will not take lightly maturity, because the longer we linger there, the higher the probability that we had a false conversion. Help us, O Lord, to be those who show ourselves to be true children of God by making our calling and election sure as we add to our faith all the virtues that you have called us to add unto it. We thank you for the gift of salvation. It is free, it is secure, and no flesh can boast about it. It is purely an act of grace. We are recipients of it. And yet, Lord, we pray that in view of your mercies, in view of this salvation, free, and true, we would offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to you. That we would see ourselves right. That we would see the brethren in the fellowship with kindness. That we would make use of our gifts in the fellowship. That we would not be overcome by evil, but we'll overcome evil with good. Lord, help us to demonstrate Christ-likeness, both individually and as a body corporate. We please pray that you strengthen us to spur one another to love and to good deeds in our private interactions. We please pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.